Well, this morning I'd like to provide, a, I guess, an appendix to uh, last Sunday's sermon on First Things First. And uh, I left last Sunday feeling like I was the only one in the room and uh, that God was speaking directly to my heart, but uh, based on some conversations I've had this week and uh, others' uh, conversations that have been shared with me, it sounded like there was a few other, a few of you uh, were also here with me, apparently, right? And uh, we were being very convicted and challenged uh, when it comes to what does it mean to uh, leave your first love. And so um, I confess to the elders this morning that I feel like I'm the last guy who should be preaching this message this morning because I feel like I'm the one who needs to hear it the most. And I honestly wish someone else could be up here uh, and I could be out there sitting uh, where you're sitting, taking some notes and, and taking it all in. And, and yet I trust, I'm confident that the Lord will use this experience for all of us to, to help us to be more of who he wants us to be and to love him uh, in a manner that's worthy of the great love with which he loves us. Amen? And so take your Bibles, and I want you to turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. And here in this letter, the Apostle Peter was writing to encourage suffering saints throughout Asia. Uh, They were being persecuted for their faith in Christ, and he was encouraging them, writing to encourage them to rejoice uh, in their trials, because it proved the genuineness of their faith in Christ, who would one day honor them and bless them when he returned. And we see that in verses 6 and 7, uh, there in 1 Peter chapter 1, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 8, Peter gave what may be the most simple yet profound definition of a Christian found anywhere in the Bible. Notice what he wrote. And though you've not seen him, You love him. Obviously referring to Christ. He just mentioned the revelation or the coming of Christ. And though you've not seen him, though you've not seen Christ, you love him. How is it possible, is it possible to truly love someone that that you've never had any face-to-face contact with? Apparently it is. Because none of us have ever seen Jesus face to face. And yet that doesn't stop us from loving him, does it? See, our love for Christ is supernatural. You don't normally naturally love something or someone you can't see. We have to see it with our own two eyes to believe it, to to love it. And so the fact that we have love for Christ in our hearts is, 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 is really the primary evidence that our lives have been truly transformed by Christ. A follower of Christ is first and foremost a lover of Christ. And we're using the expression first things first because it refers to something that should be done or dealt with 
before anything else because it's the most important. I'm sure most of you have heard of a guy named Lee Iacocca, an American uh, auto executive. He's best known for spearheading the development of the iconic Ford Mustang back in the 1960s. And uh, after being fired by Henry Ford Ford II, uh, they apparently weren't seeing eye to eye on some things. Uh, He was quickly hired uh, by the Chrysler Corporation to serve as their CEO, and he became a national celebrity by steering the company away from bankruptcy toward record profits uh, in the 1980s. And uh, his straight-talking style resulted in in numerous uh, memorable quotes like this one. This is probably my favorite. He said this, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. That's good. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And so Icoca knew that, that, that the key to an effective company is figuring out what is the most important thing and keeping everyone focused on that, keeping that at the forefront of everything that happens. And I think it's the same for being an effective Christian or being an effective church, that we need to know what the, the most important thing is and keep that at the forefront of all that we do. We learned last week that, that the most important thing in the Christian life is what? What did we say? Loving Jesus. Love for Christ is the highest, the purest motivation for everything we do as a Christian. And so let me ask you some questions. Why did you come to church this morning? Why are you sitting there with your Bibles open, listening to the preaching of God's Word? Why did you teach Sunday school this morning? Why did you just get done singing the songs that we sang? Why why do you greet people at the door? Why do you serve in the nursery? Why, why are you an elder? Why are you a deacon? Why, why do you lead a grow group? Why, why do you go on short-term missions trips? Why do you help run the soundboard in the back? What, what inspires you to give generously and, and sacrificially of your resources to the work of the Lord? What, what compels you to wake up every morning to spend time in God's word and to pray? What, what keeps you from giving into temptation? What, what drives you to persevere through trials? What, what inspires you to share the gospel with others? Is it because you're supposed to? That would be doing it out of obligation. Maybe you're motivated by guilt? Or is it because you're, you're committed to living the truth? You're, you're committed. I mean, you, you're, you have a conviction. This is your duty. Well, that may be a bit higher motive than guilt, obligation. Or is it that you're enthralled with the Lord Jesus Christ? You're enthralled with the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you just can't help yourself. I mean, there is nowhere else you'd rather be on planet Earth right now than right here with God's people sitting under the teaching of God's Word. And so I think that would be motivated out of affection 
out of love, which is the highest motive. And so love for Christ is really the driving force of the Christian life. And and yet, as we mentioned last week, all of us have experienced seasons in our spiritual lives when our love for Christ dwindles, it dies down, and it needs, needs to be rekindled. We know what it feels like when our relationship with Christ feels more mechanical than it does meaningful, when we find ourselves just kind of going through the motions and there's not a whole lot of emotion behind it, just kind of mouthing the words and not really feeling it, doing things because we have to, not because we want to. And we looked at the church in Revelation, uh, or excuse me, the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus had much to commend them for. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they're not and you found them to be false and you've persevered and have endured for my own name's sake and have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. And so Jesus commended them for for all the things they were doing right. I mean, they were a serving church. They were a sacrificing church. They were a steadfast church. They were a separated church. Uh, They they, they were hardworking, persevering, righteous living, uh, doctrinally sound. They were doing everything right except for the most important thing. Their first love, they had left. This bastion of biblical truth, the church of Ephesus, bustling with spiritual activity, had forsaken the main thing. They hadn't kept the main thing the main thing. And that was love for Christ. And so that love that, that characterized the, their early years had, had waned. They, they were now 40 years into their church plant, if you will, and their spiritual life had become cold and, and, and dead. And as we say about some marriages, right, the honeymoon was over. And, and like many marriages, you don't necessarily notice that on the outside, right? You, 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 you see the couple coming and interacting like they always have. But something has gone on in their hearts. Something's lacking in their hearts. The same thing for a church. You can go to a church that's active in ministry and orthodox in its theology and never necessarily pick up the fact that they're, they're, they're not keeping the main thing the main thing. They, they're not doing it out of love for Christ. Well, the good news is that Christ himself prescribed a treatment plan for the church in Ephesus. He says, I know your love for me has waned, but let me tell you what to do about it. And so he commanded them to do three things in order to rekindle the flame of their love for him. In verse 5, if you're there, Revelation 2, 5, therefore, he says, remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. So he tells them, first of all, to remember, literally to keep on remembering. Think back how things used to be when you first came to know Christ, or when you were totally devoted to Christ, you used to enjoy sweet intimacy with Christ, you need to think back and remember what that was like, because there was a time when you truly loved Christ, and you were passionate about Christ, 
Secondly, he said you need to repent. You need to change. You need to turn around, go in the opposite direction. And, and where, where does that begin? Well, it begins by confessing a lack of love for Christ, if that's appropriate. Tell him that you know that affection, I know that affections matter in my relationship with you. And ask him to restore and reignite your passion for him. John Piper said that we should pray unceasingly for passions that match his reality. And so we need to remember, we need to repent, and then we need to redo or repeat. In other words, go back to doing the things that we used to do to cultivate our love relationship with Christ, whether that was spending time in his word, praying, regularly being involved in, in a local church, faithfully serving Christ, telling others about Christ. And we mentioned last week we need to do that even if we don't feel like it at first, trusting that our feelings will follow as we obey and do the right things. And so herein lies the solution to lost love. We need to obey these, these three commands by faith, believing that they are the divine means that Christ ordained for us to fall in love with him all over again. That's what Jesus wanted most of all for the church in Ephesus. He wanted them to fall in love with him all over again. Now let me be more specific this morning with those three general commands from Christ kind of as our foundation. Let's build on that a little bit. And, and consider some ways, practical ways, that we can love Jesus more. So if you're sitting here this morning or you were sitting there last week thinking, man, I, that's me. He's describing me. How did he know? And, and you feel like your love for Christ has faded. You sense the flame in your heart for Christ has died low. And I want to provide some practical things that you can do to fan that flickering flame into what hopefully will be a blazing inferno of love for Christ. So what are these ways? Number one, be absolutely honest about your love for Jesus. Be absolutely honest about your love for Jesus. And I think this is where it begins. Rekindling your love for Christ starts with an honest self-examination about where you're at in your relationship with him. Turn over to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, we have that familiar story where uh, Jesus, or the count here of Jesus restoring Peter after he denied Christ three times. And in John chapter 21, Jesus met the disciples up at the Sea of Galilee, and he zeroed in on Peter as they were sitting around the fire eating breakfast. Jesus had a very pointed conversation with Peter. This is John 21, verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to the Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Now, if you're familiar with this passage, you, you know that there are two different words for love here. Jesus was using the word agape, which is that God-like love, that, that um, uh, sacrificial, unconditional love. And Peter was using the word phileo, which is the brotherly love, the word for brotherly love. And so it, it, you might think, well, what's going on here? Why is you know, Jesus talking about agape love and Peter's responding with phileo love? And some commentators say, you know, we shouldn't make too much out of that, of these two different words. Um, maybe, maybe this was stylistic and nothing more. Well, at the same time, it could be very significant, which I think it is because before this account, you know, Peter had boasted about his devotion for Christ. And he, he even had contrasted it with the other disciples, implying that he loved Christ more than the other disciples did. And when Jesus said, hey guys, just so you know, you're all going to fall away from me. And Peter said, I don't know about these other guys, but I'm not going to fall away from you. And in essence, he was saying, I, I there's no one that loves you more than me, Jesus. And I'll never fall away. And of course, Jesus said, well, Peter, I, unfortunately, you are going to fall away. And before the night's over, you're going to deny me, not just once, not just twice, you're going to deny me three times. And as you can imagine, after Peter denied the Lord, he was no longer proud and presumptuous. He had been humbled by the Lord. And he wasn't about to claim total devotion to Christ as he had previously. And so I think he used a lesser word for love, something that less than total commitment, total devotion, which, the, which was the only thing he felt safe saying at this point. I don't, I don't feel safe claiming anything beyond that. I, last time I did that, I biffed it big time. And so I think there's a, a difference here between uh, Jesus saying, hey, do you love me sacrificially? And Peter was like, well, I, you know, I have a, a familial affection for you. Jesus is saying, hey, do you, do you love me 100%? And he's like, well, you know, I, I love you maybe 60%. Again, I, I don't think he was ready to go out on a limb again and say, I'm all in because last time I did that, apparently I wasn't. The point here is I, I think each of us needs to reenact this scene in our own lives. Put yourself in, in Peter's position and imagine Jesus looking at you and calling out your name and saying, do you love me? And you'll have to respond like Peter did. 
Lord, you, you know all things. I, I, I can't pretend to love you. I might be able to fool my, my spouse or my kids or my parents or my pastor or my fellow church members, but, but I can't fool you. You know how much I really love you or don't love you. I'll never forget a conversation I had a while back with a young man who, who wasn't where he needed to be with the Lord. He knew that, and, and he said with a sense of concern, you know, I, I look for affections in my heart for Christ. I'm looking for them. I just don't see them. And I was troubling to him, and, and I appreciated his, his honesty and transparency, but based on what we both knew that it was doubtful that he was truly saved. If you, if you look for affections for Christ and you don't see any in your heart, according to 1 Corinthians 16, 22, it says, if you do not love the Lord, let him be anathema. Let him be cursed. In other words, that's the mark of a Christian. It, there must be some level of love for Jesus in your heart, some affection for Christ in the heart. It may not be the blazing inferno that we're striving for this morning. But at least you can see a flicker that, yeah, you know, I, at, the, at the root of it all, I do truly love Christ. I came across a book years ago, a Puritan book by a guy named Thomas Vincent. And uh, the title of the book is The True Christian's Love to the Unseen Christ. Guess what verse it's based on? 1 Peter 1.8. And uh, usually the first title, um, the Puritan books had a title, but then they had a subtitle. So if you're not quite sure what they were talking about in the title, let me explain it to you with my subtitle, which is usually a sentence. Listen to the subtitle of this book. This is The True Christian's Love to the Unseen Christ, a discourse chiefly tending to excite and promote the decaying love of Christ in the hearts of Christians. Sounds like that's what we're talking about, right? Talking about exciting and promoting the decaying love of Christ in the heart of Christians. And listen to what he says here, and I'm going to be reading several times from this book because it really, this message in many ways uh, came out of my study of this, of this book. On the very first page, he says this, the life of Christianity consists very much in our love to Christ. Without love to Christ, we are as much without, a, without spiritual life as a, carcass, uh, as a carcass when the soul is fled from it is without natural life. Faith without love to Christ is a dead faith, and a Christian without love to Christ is a dead Christian, dead in sins and trespasses. Without love to Christ, we may have this name of Christians, but we are wholly without the nature we may have the form of godliness, but are holy without the power. And so we need to start by just being honest and, and, and about where we are in our relationship with Christ. But, but also we need to examine how we got there. I, I find myself not in a good place. Okay, that's, I got that. I'm willing to admit that. But then you've got to go to the next step and say, how did I get there? And you need to be able to determine where you went astray or how you got off track so you can retrace your steps, if you will, in order to get back into a close relationship with Christ. Shortly after K. 
Kelly and I moved to Texas. We just had Zach and Hannah at the time, and they were four and two, and we were close to 10 years into our marriage. And one evening, Kelly wanted to talk, and uh, she said, uh, she, she essentially confronted me and said, you know, it just doesn't seem like you love God and me the way you used to. And of course, being the godly husband that I am, I said, you know, honey, you're right. Thanks for pointing that out to me. I've been thinking the same thing. <laughs> no, that led to quite a, an argument that evening. And of course, I wanted to defend myself, as we so often do. And uh, we ended up going to bed. And the next morning, as I was heading off to work, Kelly handed me a letter and she said, uh, I want to encourage you to read this sometime today when you have a moment. So I had a moment at lunch and I pulled that card out of my briefcase. And lo and behold, it was a card, not that Kelly had written to me, it was a card that I had written to her when we were dating. And my own words condemned me. Because I read that letter and I was, who is this guy? Where did he go? I used to always sign my letters to people, righteous and radical. That was my little thing I used to say. And I was like, where did that righteous radical dude go? I mean, it's like not so righteous and not so radical anymore. And so I was really convicted about it. And I came home and I said, uh, Hey, I'm curious, do you have any more of those letters? And out came the box. <laughs> she had kept every letter I ever wrote to her when we were dating. And so I said, you know, sheepishly said, thank you. And uh, she went to bed, and I stayed up late that night just going through all those letters, just rereading all those letters. And then when I was done with all those letters, I thought, I need to watch our wedding video. And I pulled out our VHS wedding video, and I popped it in, and I watched that. And next thing I know, I'm writing a love letter to my wife, confessing to her that I haven't been loving her the way I need to love her, and asking her to forgive me, and asking her to help me. And it was such a wonderful experience. It was hard. It was painful. But it was wonderful because it led to a, a, just a sweet season of revival and renewal of our love for each other. But it all started with being honest with where we were at in our relationship. And I think that's where it starts in our relationship with Christ. And so be honest. Be honest with where you're at. Secondly, spend time with Jesus in the word and prayer. I mean, spending time together is the key for any relationship to grow and flourish. I mean, you just think about your marriage or a friendship that you have. The more time you spend together, the more you grow to love that person. And if you neglect to spend time together, uh, your love for each other begins to diminish. And often when I have the privilege of counseling couples and they're having a difficult time in their marriage, and one of the things I'll ask them is just, hey, how much time have you guys spent this week just sitting, talking to one another, praying together, hanging out, going on a date, doing something fun? Uh, well, we're kind of busy right now. We've got lots of kids, and I got a job, and I'm homeschooling, and I'm doing this. And well, 
the simplest diagnosis is part of your problem, if not the underlying problem, is, is you're not spending enough time together. And you've got you to figure out how to get, get some time together. And it's the same in your relationship with Christ. Listen, Christianity is not a religion. It's not a bunch of rules and regulations. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so the primary way we build our relationship with Christ is by spending time with him primarily through what? His word and through prayer. And you know as well as I do, when we neglect these secret duties, these things that no one, really, no one else really knows, whether or not we're spending time in the Word, whether or not we're praying, but when we neglect these secret duties, it, it usually is the primary cause of declining love for Christ. It's always the first thing to go, is it not? You can trace it back. You know what? I stopped having my quiet time. I stopped spending time with the Lord in His Word and prayer. I got busy. I got tired. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Hebrews 7.25, draw near to God through him since he always makes intercession for us. So many good things to share from this book, but let me just, again, read just a quick quote here. Would you have much love unto Christ whom you've never seen? Look much upon this picture and image in the scriptures. In other words, yeah, you can't see Jesus with your eyes, right? But you can see him where? In the Bible. The scriptures are Christ's love letters. There are many epistles and love letters, as it were, in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, wherein Christ gives most kind expressions of most endeared love unto his people. Read much and study Christ's love letters, especially those parts of the scriptures wherein Christ expresses most of his kindness in love. When's the last time you opened up your Bible in the morning and viewed it as a love letter from Jesus? How about prayer? If you would attain high measures of love to Christ, you must apply yourselves unto God in prayer and therein seek diligently to him for it. If you have much love to Christ in your hearts, you must be often at the throne of grace upon your knees and there humbly acknowledge, if not the lack, yet the weakness of your love for Christ. Bewail your sins which dampen your affections and earnestly request that he would work your hearts unto a strong love. Tell him that this love to Christ, though it is your duty, yet it is his gift that you ought to act it but this you cannot do unless he works it. Tell him how easily he can kindle his fire of love to Christ in your bosom and blow it up into a flame. Tell him he has bid you ask and you shall have and whatever you ask according to his will he hears and that it is his will that you should love Christ not only truly but also strongly. Therefore request, pray, that you may have such a love to Christ as may overpower all other love and keep your hearts from all inordinacy of affection to anything beneath and besides the Lord Jesus. Plead how much it will be for his glory that you should have much love unto Christ that hereby you shall be enabled to honor him all the more in this world. Man, that's so good. I often tell couples in premarital counseling, or even sometimes I remind them in the wedding ceremony itself that the most important thing that they can do on a daily basis to maintain their love for one another throughout a lifetime of marriage is to have their quiet time. Pastor, that's it. 
We're paying you good money, and they're not paying me. I'm just kidding. But, and that's all you got for us? That's the key to a, a, a strong, happy marriage? Have your quiet time? Seriously? Read more, pray more? Exactly. Because as you spend time in God's word and prayer, what happens? You grow more in love with Christ. And as you grow more in love with Christ, you'll grow more in love with your spouse. That's just the way it is. God designed it that way. I don't know why or how, but Paul, even in Ephesians chapter 5, he's talking about marriage. And next thing you know, he's talking about the church. And you're like, oh, Paul, what are you talking about? You're talking about husbands and wives or Christ and the church? And he's like, yes. It's, 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 it's intricately intertwined. It's one and the same. And so the way to keep the flame of love in your heart for your spouse is to keep in love with Jesus. And really the flame of love for each other feeds off the flame of love you both have for Christ. And so you need to spend time with Jesus and the word in prayer. Thirdly, you need to hang around people who love Jesus. I mean, this is practical stuff here. How do you love Jesus more? Hang around people who love Jesus. Proverbs 13, 20, he who walks with the wise will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 22, verse 24, do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man lest you learn his ways and find his snare yourself. The Proverbs is just simply saying, the father to the son, hey, be careful who you hang around because you'll become like them. That's the basic principle. We become like who we hang around. And so if you hang around people that love Jesus... What's likely to happen? You're going to love Jesus too. And if you hang around people that don't love Jesus, what's likely to happen? You're probably not going to love Jesus either. What's the goal of spending time with other Christians? Hebrews 10, 23. Let us consider how to what? Stimulate one another, stir up one another to what? Love and good deeds. Again, we've used this illustration before, but... If you've sat by a campfire and you, you, you've been a little pyro, right, and you're playing around with the coals and you pull one of those coals out, what happens? It dies out. But then you can push it back into the center of the fire and what happens? It, it reignites. When it's, when it's placed back alongside these living, these living coals, The point is, if you get close enough to someone who's burning hot for Christ, you might catch on fire too. And it may not be somebody alive. It may be some old dead guy. And what I mean by that is a Christian biography, like, for example, the one Chris quoted from that we're reading together as men. Well, why are we reading that? Because I want to be fired up. For Christ, not literally like these guys who were burned at the stake, right? These five English reformers. But when you read stories like, like these guys and, and, and they, they go to the, their place of execution and they're going to get burned at the stake, burned alive. I can't even imagine that. I, I'm cooking burgers and it singes the hair on the back of my knuckles. I'm like, ow. And these guys are staying there in the flames being burned alive and they walk up and they pick up one of the sticks and they kiss it and they come over to the stake and they kiss it. One pastor, we just read this last week, told one of his parishioners, he said, if you see me flinch once in the flames, you don't have to believe anything I ever taught you. I'm like, these guys are in a different league. But they loved Christ. They loved Christ. 
And so you hang around those people and you, and you read about them and you spend time with them. They stir you up. J.C. Ryle, who actually wrote Five English Reform- Reformers, wrote another book called Thoughts for Young Men. And uh, this is what he said to, to young men. He said, listen, guys, your wife must either help your soul or harm it. There's no neutral. She will either fan the flame of religion in your heart or throw cold water upon it and make it burn low. That, that, that doesn't just apply to husbands and wives. That applies to any friendship. Be careful who your friends are because they'll either fan the flame of Christ in your heart or they'll throw cold water upon it. And so hang around people who love Jesus. Number five. Are we on number five? Four. How about this one? Hate the world and everything that gets in the way of Jesus. Hate the world and everything that competes with your love for for Christ. The Bible makes it clear that the opposite of love for Christ is love for the world. What what keeps us from loving Christ? It's, It's love for the things of the world. Jesus himself said it's impossible to love God and money. He said you're going to love one and hate the other, or you're going to hate one and love the other. That's just the way it is. You can't do both. 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. How about James 4? James 4, verse 4, you adulteresses, yikes. James is serious here. He's calling us adulteresses. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? You guys are cheating on Jesus. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he's made to dwell in us. I don't think we meditate enough, think enough about the attribute of God's jealousy. It's even to the ears, it sounds, wait a minute, God, jealous? Is that possible? Jealousy is bad. Every time we use the word jealousy, it's a bad thing. Well, if it's God who's jealous, it's a holy jealousy and it's a good thing. How do you think my wife would feel if I brought another gal home one day and said, hey, honey, I just uh, wanted you to meet my new friend. And uh, I thought it'd be fun if, if she lived with us. I love you, but I also love her. So I wanted to live with both of you. You're all going, that's really weird. That's really wrong. And Kelly would be, have every right to hit me upside the head with a nine iron, right? What are you thinking, you knucklehead? Why? There should be a, a jealousy, a, a, a fighting for that relationship. This week I read Spurgeon's morning recording, September 12th. It was on Nahum 1-2 about the jealousy of the Lord. Listen to what uh, 
he wrote here, this is just profound. He said, your Lord is very jealous of your love. Oh, believer, did he choose you? He cannot bear that you should choose another. Did he buy you with his own blood? He cannot endure that you should think that you are your own or that you belong to this world. He loved you with such a love that he would not stop in heaven without you. He would sooner die than you would perish, than you should perish. And he cannot endure that anything should stand between your heart's love and himself. He cannot bear that you should hew out broken cisterns when the overflowing fountain is always free to you. This is grievous to our jealous Lord. And this is a beautiful line. He says, oh, that we may have grace this day to keep our hearts in sacred chastity for our beloved alone with sacred jealousy, shutting our eyes to all the fascinations of the world. What typically motivates us from or motivates us to not give in to sin, to um, what are we saying? All the follies of sin I lay down. What, what's typically motivating us? I'll confess sometimes it's just I'm afraid to be punished. I, I don't want to be disciplined. How about being motivated by the thought, how could I sin against such great love? Isn't that a much higher, pure motivation? <laughs> And so we need to hate everything that competes with our love for Christ. Number five, show Jesus how much you love him by your obedience. Show Jesus how much you love him by your obedience. Uh, and, and again, Jesus himself, in no uncertain terms, said the greatest proof that we love him is that we what? Obey him. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. It's not like, oh, man, I got to do that, or oh, I can't do that. No, it's like, they're not a burden. It's like, hey, I love Christ. I want to obey. I want to honor him. And every time we, we disobey Christ's words, it's like, it's like throwing a, a bucket of, of cold water on the flame of our love for Christ. Every time we sin, it's just like, push. Sin again, push. And so the more you stop doing what Christ forbids and start doing what he commands, your love for him will increase. Every so often, I'll have a, a husband who shows up and says, hey, you know what, I, I, I want to divorce my wife. And I'm like, really, why? Well, I just don't love her anymore. And, you know, being the compassionate counselor that I am, I'm like, So? Since when is that grounds for divorce? You don't love your wife anymore? Listen, God commands us to love our wives like he loves us. And if you don't love her, then rather than leave her, why don't you ask him to help you learn to love her again? Out of obedience to Christ and begin talking to her and treating her in, in loving ways and there may be some things you need to say and things you need to do and you don't feel like saying them and you don't feel like doing them. But you're doing it. You're saying it because it's right. It honors the Lord and it honors your wife. And so go. Maybe start today by swinging by Walmart and getting a bouquet of flowers and bringing them home and surprising your wife. And you're like, I don't feel like doing that. So what? Do it anyway. 
And you'll be surprised as you do that what begins to happen in your heart. There's a principle in God's word that says, for where your treasure is, what? Your heart will be also. So start investing time, energy, money into your wife, for example, and see where your heart goes. I guarantee it's going to go back to her. So show Jesus how much you love him by your obedience. And, and by the way, you may, I was so grateful for one of our elders came up to me this week and just reminded me of this basic principle that sometimes we get so down on ourselves, we get discouraged, man, I just don't feel like I love Jesus the way I need to love Jesus. But hey, you know what? Are you obeying him? Are, are you doing what the Bible says you're supposed to do? Well, yeah. Well, guess what? Jesus said that means you love him. And sometimes we do things without the feeling, Right? But we're doing it because it's right. And, and Jesus said, hey, you, you love me. You're obeying me. You're loving me. They're one and the same. And so be encouraged by that. How about this? Number six, tell others about Jesus. Tell others about Jesus. You want to love Jesus more? You need to tell others about Jesus. Why? Because it's normal and natural for all of us to tell other people about the things we love. You love a certain kind of food. Hey, have you tried this yet? You love a certain sports team. It's like, hey, you know what? Who's playing today? Or you love a certain, you know, food, uh, you know, singer or a certain kind of car or whatever. Listen, the point is just listen to a person for a few minutes and you're going to find out really fast what they love because that's what we all talk about. And if you hear somebody just talking about themselves, well, guess who they love? Exactly, themselves. Don't be that guy. See, when we truly love someone, we can't help but talk about them. And it's not a duty, it's a delight. The problem isn't coming up with the courage to tell others about the one we love. It's coming up with the words to express how much we love them. And so if we truly love Christ, we'll want others to to love him too. But if we don't love him, we won't care if others do. And we won't tell other people about him. And so tell others about Christ Number seven, long for Jesus to come back. Long for Jesus to come back. The Bible says that every Christian should long for the return of Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20, we learned this a few months back when we went through that study of the book of Philippians. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven for which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 4.8, in the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me but also who, all who loved his appearing. You really can't say you love Jesus if you're not loving, right, his appearing. You know what it's like to be apart from a loved one. I mean, somebody you really love, when you truly love somebody, you can't stand being apart from them for very long, can you? You miss them so much, and you, you actually count the days until they return, and you can't wait for them to, to, to come home, and, and the waiting causes you to love them even more, right? What does it say? Distance makes the heart grow fonder. That's what it should be doing in our relationship with Christ. 
We should be regularly saying, Lord, I, I, just, I just miss you so much. I can't wait to see you. Like for the first time, to see you when you come back. When's the last time you prayed that prayer? And so long for Jesus to come back. We need to live more in light of his return. And, and then finally, and, and this is where we, we really left off last week, and I tried to maybe just give you some hope as we left, and that is this, remember how much Jesus loves you. You want to love Jesus more? Remember how much Jesus loves you. Because at the end of the day, in, in all the ups and downs of the Christian life, we can never forget that it's not how much we love Jesus, it's how much he loves us. 1 John 4, verse 10, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love because he what? First loved us. And so again, even though your love may be all over the place for Christ, his love never has changed and it never will change. And no matter what you do or, or don't do, he's not going to love you any more or any less. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Romans chapter 8 talks about that. And going back to where we began with Peter's restoration in John 21, the whole time Jesus was challenging Peter's love for him, he was actually communicating his love for Peter. You denied me three times, Peter, but guess what? I'm going to reaffirm my love for you three times. And even though Peter had failed him miserably, it didn't change how much Christ loved him. Enough to call him out and make things right. And again, the exchange was not so much about Jesus providing Peter with this opportunity to reaffirm his love for him. It was more an opportunity for Jesus to reaffirm his love for Peter. And, and if, if you don't get anything else out of this little two-part series, hopefully you walk away being reminded of how much you're loved. Instead of walking out of here beating yourself up, I don't love Jesus enough, I don't love Jesus enough, I gotta love him more. No, it's, how about walking out of here going, wow, I forgot how much Jesus loves me. And when we're wowed by the love of Christ for us, this is what happens. This is the result. Talk about motivation. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, in the context of being ambassadors for Christ, he says, for the love of Christ controls us or compels us. Now, when I was younger in the Lord, I used to read that and think, well, that's, you know, Paul just loved Jesus so much and that's what compelled him. Well, I don't think that's what he's saying here because the next line says for the love of Christ controls us he died so that we who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on our behalf in other words what compels me is the fact that Jesus loved me so much that he died for me that motivates me that drives me in life and in ministry 
And he clarifies that in Galatians 2.20. This is, our, this is the theme verse for our student ministry, 2.20. If you never made the connection there, this is the verse, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Why do I live? What drives my life? The fact that Christ loved me. He gave himself up for me. What, what more motivation do I need to live my life for his honor and his glory? Listen, beloved, nothing, nothing will rekindle your love for Christ better and quicker than to meditate on his love for you. And let me read one more section from this book, which hopefully some of you guys will go run out and, and get, probably on Amazon, because I don't think we have it in our resource center. Again, the true Christian's love to the unseen Christ, and subtitle, you can't leave it out, a discourse chiefly tending to excite and promote the decaying love of Christ in the hearts of Christians. Listen to what he said. Would you attain much love to Christ? Think and think again of how wonderful and matchless his love is. Don't just sit around, oh man, I just don't love him enough. No, think about his love. What heights that cannot be reached, what depths in it that cannot be fathomed, what other dimensions which cannot be comprehended. It's Ephesians 3.17, right? That, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. As you can be thinking about the rest of your lifetime and never get to the bottom of it. It's incomprehensible. He says, get often into the mount of divine contemplation and there look upwards into heaven and think with yourselves, oh dear Jesus, how lovely are thou in thyself, the darling of heaven, the delight of the Father, the admiration of the angels, oh what brightness of glory, what shining luster art thou arrayed with, thou art clothed with most excellent majesty and honor, thou art girded with infinite might and power, the beauty of thy face is most wonderful, and does this lovely fair one, this fairest of 10,000, this most excellent and altogether lovely person bear a particular love for me? To such a vile worm as me? To such a dead dog as me? To such an undeserving, ill-deserving, hell-deserving sinner as me? Oh, what marvelous kindness is this? What infinite riches of free grace. Does he know me by name? Has he given himself for me and given himself to me? And shall I not give my heart to him? Am I written in his book, redeemed by his blood, clothed with his righteousness, beautified with his image? Has he put the dignity of a child of God upon me and prepared a place in the Father's house for me? Oh, wonderful, oh, admirable, what shall I render? What return shall I make? And yet I am slow, slow of heart to love this dear and sweet Jesus. Awake, my soul. 
Awake from your dullness and stupidity. Shake off the sleep which glues your eyelids so close together. Shake out the dust of the earth which has gotten into your eyes and keeps you from the view of your beloved. Such contemplations of Christ and pleadings with your own soul will tend exceedingly to the promotion of your love unto Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, first and foremost, but Lord, thank you for this man named Thomas Vincent, who is someone that we need to hang around because he loved Jesus, and he wants us to love Jesus, and so, Lord, I pray that as we leave here today, that what would be in the forefront of our minds is not how much we don't love Jesus, but how much Jesus loves us. And that would be the starting point for our love, that our love for Christ would just be reciprocal. It would just be in return. It would just be responding uh, to his great love for us. And so help us, Lord. We are so busy. We're so distracted. Uh, There's just so many other things to do in life than to meditate upon Christ. And so, Lord, would you grant us grace just to discipline ourselves, to spend time alone Uh, in a quiet place long enough to think some of these deeper thoughts that most of us never think, to meditate on on your word and and what it says about Christ's love for us. And we just thank you for this time to to really reevaluate what is the main thing that we need to keep the main thing. Lord, as individuals and as a church, and so as we launch into a new ministry year together, that, Lord, the ultimate motivation for all that we say, all that we do, would be our love for Christ. And we would love Christ because he loved us and gave himself for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.